from Camel Prescott Road, this is Stalking Art, a series about pairing and conversing with art thinkers and makers on how they ponder. On today's episode, we welcome an extremely talented writer who's also an associate editor at the art newspaper, Kabir Jhala, and an artist on our roster, Varunika Sara. There is a lot of conversation with the past. You know. I realized that uh, the pace at which things were happening around me, I was forgetting things. You know, amnesia became a way of coping with it, and I wasn't comfortable with that because I think forgetting something is adding another layer of violence to what has happened. And uh, I find that when I draw or paint something, it remains with me forever. Hi, Veronica. Hi, Kabir. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me. Um, it's great to be able to speak with you about what I consider to be one of the most important and urgent shows that I have seen this year, your exhibition, Caput Mortem, at Camille Prescott Road. Thank you. And so for listeners who haven't seen the exhibition, I'll just give a brief explanation of what it's about. I think it comprises around four or five um connected bodies of work made over the last three years. There are works on paper, there are paintings, there are sort of embroidery, embroidered works as well. And uh, most broadly, they sort of speak to images of violence, instances of violence that have occurred in the last few years in India, much of which um, has been state mandated as well. And so that's kind of where I wanted to begin our discussion today, which is talking about the role of images and violence in the past couple of years and how it's affected your artistic process. So I was wondering if you could sort of take us through what the past few years have been for you, you know, creating these works and the kind of political climate in which you consider yourself to have been creating them in. Um, they are a few series, especially a sort of Caput Mortem and Miasma, which deal with the last, specifically with the last few years. But uh, we, the people, as well as Potence, actually sort of uh, deal with instances of violence that go back to the foundation of India as an independent country. Um, because a, a lot of this exhibition was also uh, to do with thinking about why we are at this particular moment, like what has led us to this particular moment. Um, so um, there is a lot of conversation with the past, you know, because because of certain things that have happened in the past that this particular present has sort of come into being. So that's one of the major concerns of this body of work. The uh, the series that specifically deal with the last, uh, say, seven, eight years uh, were also sort of very uh, personal in the sense that uh, they were made as coping mechanisms because I realized that uh, the pace at which things were happening around me, I was forgetting things. You know, amnesia became a way of coping with it and I wasn't comfortable with that because I think forgetting something is adding another layer of violence to what has happened. And uh, I find that when I draw or paint something, it remains with me forever. So I think uh, the two series, My Asthma and Caput uh, Mortem, were actually very personal ways for me to just sort of remember what has happened for myself. With regard to the sort of role in which an artist has to play in a sort of time of crisis, I think that's really interesting when you talk about this sort of need to remember, because I think that actually yeah. extends 
past artists as yes, well. Absolutely. I think I think a very very um, interesting and prevalent aspect of what is happening right now, especially in India, is a desire for the state to um, create this amnesia and to sort of obliterate a lot of history and to move towards erasure. True. And of course, we've seen it so many time and time again. You know, you erase a mosque and you build a temple on top of it. You know, it's that kind of sense of state erasure. I actually wanted you to maybe yeah, discuss as well how important it is to remember certain details of images. I think um, at a point where we are sort of, um, the state is actively rewriting history, you know, I think it is extremely important to remember, mm-hmm. not just uh, what has happened in the past, but also sort of mm-hmm. what is happening around us right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, we can have this very neat segregation of what is you know, private, what is personal, what is public. So I think it's extremely important to remember. Mm-hmm. What role has images or have images really played in your understanding of politics in the last seven or eight years? I want to talk about um, the way in which you've been consuming images of protest, images of violence, because they are, of course, so prevalent in the works that you're showing. And really interestingly about your works, they actually depict real instances of violence. These aren't your interpretation of them. These are actual, these, these are very factual depictions sure. of things that ha- sure. have happened in real life. And so I first wanted to talk about how you consume the news, how you're consuming, you know, these images. Is it on WhatsApp? Is it on Twitter? Is it um, on live news? I have a slight uh, sort of discomfort with using the word consuming mm-hmm. because a lot of protests are something that I've been participating in as well. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you're right. A lot of uh, images have been taken from, say, Twitter, uh, from Instagram, or mostly from news portals, so archives of newspapers like mm-hmm. the Hindu or the Times of India. A lot of them have been sort of uh, requested uh, from photographers who've been on the ground, uh, photographers who are friends, uh, also fellow activists uh, who've been sort of um, colleagues in the university. Mm-hmm. A lot of pictures taken by them on ground also have sort of uh, found their way into the work. And yes, I think it's very important for me to use uh, a work from images of actual events because it, this is actually happening, you know, it's not a fantasy. So it's, it's very mm-hmm. important for me to stress that these have been sort of really uh, worrying signs that we've been surrounded by and I think all of us really need to think whether we should get concerned or not. I personally think we are at a very, very dangerous point in history and we really need to take these signs very, very seriously. What does that do to you as a, both a person and, uh, and an artist when you are surrounded by so much violence and you're having to take in so much violence and as obviously you said, participate as well and see it really in real life so close to the skin. Obviously, the body of work that you have produced is an expression of this, you know, a sense of recording, but have you ever felt also the the urge to just, you know, give up painting, throw away the easel because it's so difficult? No. No, because uh, I realised that uh, everybody who is in a position of privilege, and I think as an artist, one is in a position of privilege, right? You are protected much more than most people you know, depending on where you are 
in the Indian society. And I think because of that privilege, it's more important now to speak as much as one can, as push as much as one can. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've never actually felt the urge to sort of, uh, you know, push away the easel. In fact, it's the effect has been quite the opposite. The only way I can process what's happening uh, around me, you know, to people that I know is by furiously walking. It's a, it's a great point. And it brings me on to probably the biggest question of that your show presents, which is the sort of ethics of presenting violence, you know, whether that be just in a drawing, in a gallery space, how the artist navigates that sort of dual impulse of feeling a duty to record their time and express how they feel, but also one of the biggest conversations ethically that me and my friends were having around the JNU protests, around Shaheen Bagh is, you know, do we share these photos of, like, lucky charges are, like, on social media? Like, what good is that doing? And, of course, I think in the gallery text, I don't know if you wrote it, but it kind of expressly goes into Griselda Pollock's, um, you know, like, theories about unconcentrationary memory. Yeah. And yeah. there's obviously that... I think she also, you know, really lifts heavily from Adorno, for example, talking about whether violence should be represented, but also perhaps that art is actually, or culture is one of the best representations or expressions of violence. Um, These questions are obviously very much in your head when you're creating it. Where do you, I guess, stand on the, you know, on on the duty of an art, of an artist in a time of crisis like this? These are exactly the tough questions that give me nightmares and doubts, and it can be extremely debilitating. <laughs> I've spent several days stuck in loops thinking about the ethics of representation. Mm-hmm. It's a tightrope that one must walk on, but largely, I do think it's important to share as much as we can on social media, mm-hmm. despite its limitations, simply because the more we share, the less likely it is for the in- incident to be erased. When we share specific incidents that the mainstream media might not cover, it empowers people who might be feeling uncomfortable for various reasons to speak up. I think what's happening is that people are scared. There is a lot of self-censorship. It's not like there isn't any opposition, but there is also a lot of fear. The moment you see or hear someone speak up, it pushes you to have important conversations with people around you. I don't think any artwork can usher in social change, but if the works I make spark conversation amongst people, it's a start. Yes, in terms of ethics, as an artist, I feel I have to keep questioning my position and keep asking myself whether am I inflicting another layer of violence on someone by painting or drawing something. These are lines we have to set for ourselves and think very carefully about our position, about the politics of representation before we proceed. Mm -hmm. While I was making some of the works that are currently exhibited in Caput Mortem, I did not feel that I was making art or that I would even display them in a gallery space. I was unable to cope. Drawing became cathartic. It was my way of processing. I simply wanted to make sure that I don't forget what's happening around us. Have you ever encountered at any point a degree of self-censorship with the work that you create, both in terms of maybe you see an image and you say, this is too, it's too violent for me to depict? Yes. Yes. Yes, I think there is a lot of uh, self-censorship and also a lot of self-doubt because I think uh, when uh, you are re-representing something or remediating something, uh, you have to think about the ethics of it. 
and they are certain images uh, which i feel would be really sort of it would be inflicting another layer of violence if i sort of uh, you know draw it or include it in my work so yes there is a degree of self censorship and there's also a degree of pain in a sense that some images are just so painful that it's impossible to represent them certain incidents are so painful and it would be i haven't had the courage to do that so yes every every work is also every series is also a failure of sorts in terms of the connection that you have with these images as well you um graduated from jnu and so you must still have connections to the campus yes. and to academics there so yes. again when protests erupted there um a few years earlier that must have again been even closer to the skin for you yes because to see uh, those images yes and not just see the images because uh it involved a lot of people that i knew very well we were friends colleagues who were caught up in this whole um you know sort of witch hunting you know professors i knew very well students i knew very well people that i've worked with very well so it it was very personal and that obviously must complicate again the role or the sort of position that you take as an artist and a med- and as a mediator of these instances of violence because you know you're so not removed from it you're so involved yeah. in in the situation i i think uh, my position is very clear when you look at the works where i stand mm-hmm. on the spectrum of um, the politics yes i i'm not shy about it with regard to some of the historical references that you make my favorite one i think the most interesting one is the alsberg book of miracles yeah. and so for listeners who don't know this is um a 16th century manuscript that was created in alsberg which is a city in modern day bavaria pretty close to munich and it was rediscovered about a decade ago and um a facsimile of which was published by tarshin So um I was hoping you could maybe tell us a little bit about this manuscript and why it has been such an important historical reference for you in the show. I think it's um yes the work uh, this body of work really draws heavily from the Ausberg van der Seyschenbach but it's not just this manuscript you know I've been really uh, drawn of late to the whole body of the so-called apocalyptic manuscripts. Uh, and mm. the main reason for that is I think um as artists we are always looking for visual clues to represent the world that we live in and i think this body of manuscripts are very interesting because um they help us you know sort of uh, process phenomena process violence it gives you sort of visual clues to sort of think about it because i think we are we are living in a really uh, a time of great upheaval so um you know this images it's 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 like an entry point right to sort of start talking about the violence the signs that have been appearing so at multiple levels i think this manuscript just became very important in the course of the show i think a really interesting note and the thing that really struck me is um that historians have dated the osberg manuscript um its production to around i think 1548 to yes. later 1552 yes and that date is really really important because 3 years later is something that was signed called the osberg um peace accord or the osberg treaty okay. and basically 
it was allowing princes of vassal states in Bavaria to allow their subjects to either choose um, Catholicism or Lutheranism, Protestantism, because obviously that was a huge schism that was occurring at the time. We are talking about the time of Reformation and this enormous, enormous conflict. And of course, the Reformation, especially in Germany, was marked in the early 16th century by these huge, um, a widespread amount of just small battles yeah. Um, massive increase in just you know day to day violence, and, and that's of course, and of course the plague. Yes, and so it's very interesting to again consider that this idea of the end of times is you know really really marked by a very existential question, which is yeah. that of religious conflict, which obviously is drawing such a huge parallel to the work that you're creating and the context True. in which you're creating True. it. And I, I think uh, the point of apocalyptic manuscript is not just uh, to talk about the end of time, but also to sort of uh, think, it's very positive and hopeful in the sense that they make you think uh, about, do you really want the end of times? You know, it's just about presenting the science, but uh, in a way to avert the situation, in a way to sort of pull back from it. So in a sense, though, they deal with really sort of very dark uh, thoughts and images. Uh, the point is actually quite hopeful because, you know, to sort of look out for these signs and sort of uh, work ourselves away from it. So would you say then that you have a sort of response that you hope a viewer, um, you know, elicits when they come to your show? Could you be that prescriptive? Um, I just want people to sort of start having conversations. I uh, I wouldn't presume to tell people what to think. I'm just presenting things which I think are very important, which are happening around us. And I think it is for each of us to sort of think for ourselves whether, uh, mm-hmm. you know, are these signs of social concern? Should we be worried? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to now turn a bit to... Um, the techniques in which you're creating these works. And so, as I'm sure a lot of viewers of the exhibition will agree, one of the most striking aspects of it is how beautiful it is. It's a really, really stunning body of work or several bodies of work. And of course, that initially um, is a very alluring aspect of it. It's also hung very elegantly in the gallery and stuff. And so you're spending time with these images, which you know you might even want to have in your own home, but then of course you sit with the content of it and it becomes this very uneasy feeling and the content of it becomes very incongruous with the aesthetic with which you've given it. Um, And the second point obviously being that your work has historically um, been touching upon methods used in miniature painting and historical processes. So I was hoping that you could sort of talk about this um, initially, you know, why you decided to make this show about very abject, um, you know, difficult things, so beautiful and visually appealing. Um, I think a lot of it uh, is to do with growing older and being comfortable with the language that you want to speak in. Um, I've spent a considerable time in my youth making political works in a particular language, which was very inspired by um, Soviet realism you know, the sort of strong figures, masculine women and all of that. And that's not me. It really isn't me, you know, just because you are talking about uh, 
social and political themes doesn't mean that you have to adopt a particular set language and uh, this the language that I use is my language it's what I've been developing ever since I can remember it's what I like I deeply love color I think uh, color has an immense potential to sort of convey feelings and emotions um, I love processes and I I think it should be okay to paint in the way one wants to paint do you readily accept, though, that the idea of creating um, sort of beauty out of violence can, again, be a very, very jarring aspect of the exhibition? Yeah, it, it can be jarring. I do agree with that. Um, but the point was not to beautify violence. It was just to paint in the way I paint. And I, I think if you look at... Um, the larger works, yes, I would say they can be very beautiful, but the smaller works, especially the smaller series, uh, they're not beautiful at all. It's just uh, people are just lured in by the color, but actually if you look at the smaller series, they really aren't that beautiful. They're quite dark. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, most interesting parts of your, um, of your method is actually that you use an insect um, in one of your works, and I was yeah. hoping you could just briefly explain what it, what that is. Uh, so in the work, uh, We the People, uh, I've been using a dye, carmine, which is extracted from this bug that grows on cactus leaves, uh, and it's called uh, cochineal. And what you have to do is you have to uh, crush the dried bugs and boil them to extract the dye. So again, I found this very interesting because it then again became a metaphor for sort of the history of the nation being written in blood. So yes, the show is definitely not for vegans, but... (laughs) (laughs) And uh, now that you've mentioned that fantastic series, um, I was hoping we could discuss a little bit. So if you could maybe explain to listeners what We the People is. So uh, initially, We the People started off as a series of 75 works, and I thought... um, I would have one work for every year, and uh, you know, and that's how it would be seventy-five. Uh, and uh, every year of Indian independence. Yes, but yes. what happened as I started working on it was um, there were images from a particular year that were just too painful to represent, right? Or I would have multiple things I would like to say of a particular year. So, uh, in a sense, the work took off on a completely different journey than I had intended to. And Mm -hmm. it's not a definitive uh, history of uh, modern India. Um, I think there are a lot of gaps and the way it's been displayed is uh, in a way that urges all of us to fill in those gaps, you know, to sort of think about uh, seminal moments in the past, but moments of um, silence where we didn't speak up or we should have uh, spoken up more or we should have remembered it more. And uh, the main reason for making this work was also trying to think about why are we exactly in a position where um, it was so easy for the right to uh, become so powerful. It couldn't have just happened with an election or two, right? When you see a lot of people around you, uh, then you realize that this is something much more deeper, much more structural that has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And the series was in a way to sort of start a conversation about that. I think one of the strongest aspects of um, that series is that you touch upon the exclusionary politics of um, the Nehruvian yes, era. absolutely. 
which I thought was a again a very very strong statement to make because as you said the right's power today comes from again a fracturing of the left that has its roots and you know denying certain polities yes. the ability to express themselves yes i i think the problem uh, with that model was it was a very top down model you know it was prescribed mm-hmm. right from the top you know people weren't taken uh, into consideration as they should have there was this idea that okay certain communities have to suffer for the greater good so it didn't think of enough about adivasis about dalits about women and i think uh, the reason why the right has also become uh, sort of very powerful is also because of failure on the left liberals to actually shed the sort of very uh, upper caste ways of processing and making policies i think the gaps in the work as well are so interesting because they ultimately speak to this idea that even if this work started as a historical investigation it could never of course be that the idea of uh, complete you know again perhaps using top down in historical investigation of modern day india is in itself almost an unachievable goal yes, it's a failure and i think admitting that again is actually quite important when you consider again what the politics of today are and the idea of creating this very neat linear narrative of what of what you know india stands for today true when it is of course so much more plural and complicated yes. and messy yes. than a singular narrative absolutely i completely agree with you uh, i just also want to add that i think uh, thinking about uh, the past should be a collective activity mm-hmm. if just one person is doing that it then again becomes very problematic because that's what dictators do right which is just one mm-hmm. person sort of thinking about the past and sort of narrating it in a particular way and uh, i think the work also urges that all of us just think about it you know, so that it becomes a collective activity to think about uh, our past erasures mm-hmm. and what has not been spoken about and it, of course it creates this wonderful sort of relationship between the works which depict um, more recent activity yes. versus obviously historic because you then begin to question the sort of collective memory that is being inscribed yes. today sure with what we are seeing what we are experiencing i wanted to sort of again go back to the role of images that play into collective memory because often the past and history is best remembered through images you yes. know a lot of what i know of the 1960s and 70s i wasn't born then yes. is through concrete single images you know of a of a revolution of a protest True. and again these images they they live on you know well past their time yes. and there is obviously a duty to remember them and to inscribe them and make sure that people are aware of the context in which they were produced or lived Absol- rather absolutely but i think one one works with images one also has to bear in mind that uh, archives are notorious in the sense of we also have to keep in mind who did the recording for what purpose and uh, mm-hmm. for everything that has been recorded there has there is a lot that was not recorded as well they always archives are always incomplete projects and they always are in, inscribed with the politics of who creates those archives so i think yes one has to sort of remember think about the you know the images but also 
bear in, bear this mm-hmm. particular aspect of archives as well in mind. Another thing that really interested me about this exhibition is the sense of time that you're you're inscribing into your works. Both We the People, which is you know ostensibly quite a linear progression, but then yeah. of course has these gaps. And then, of course, the other bodies of work in which you have these sort of vignette-like images that are sort of, you know, placed next to one another. And in a way, it sort of denies the idea of linear time. In a way, they're sort of floating together in this sort of, you know, one larger scene. And I wanted to speak to you about if you were considering, you know, the sense of linear time that is presented in your works and whether you acknowledge that you're disrupting it in some way. No, I don't think I'm disrupting uh, linear time at all because I think it's very mm-hmm. important to understand uh, uh, linear time as well because, you know, certain uh, events have happened in consequence of certain events, like, you know, because we didn't speak mm-hmm. enough about what happened in the 1980s, the 19, you know, mm-hmm. that's when we have another round of violence in the 1990s and because we didn't speak mm-hmm. enough about that, we are in this position that we are uh, in today. Yes, the uh, the images do seem to sort of, you know, like you said, float around together. But that's because the experience of it is such. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually something that I kind of wanted to. Maybe I was sort of pertaining to, but didn't really express clearly enough. Because um, a wonderful, you know, aspect of um, dramatic memory theory is that the idea of chronological time it sort of gets compressed and you know messed around with once you experience a trauma so a lot of these works as well they um, as I said earlier they are also using a lot of um, processes that are associated with a miniature tradition or the quote-unquote miniature tradition (laughs) yes thank you for that and so um, I was hoping that you could maybe, you know, speak about a couple of the processes which you use and also um, afterwards we can sort of speak about the legacy of miniature tradition and why your work is also very important in investigating that very tradition itself. I have, I have huge issues with the word miniature, with tradition, mm-hmm. because I think the moment you call something a tradition, you automatically presume that it should be in a particular way. And it has all these uh, notions that become a part of that definition, right? Uh, it gets automatically connected with beauty or a particular kind of time, a particular kind of space. And, you know, people get really surprised when I tell them, actually, a lot of miniature painting depicts violence. And they're like, no, it doesn't. And then they're like, no, actually, it does. And I find um, traditions are very confining. In fact, when I started painting uh, in the way I do now, it wasn't an adoption of a tradition. For me, it was a rejection of a tradition, rejection of a 200-year-old tradition of oil painting. That was the legacy that was handed to me in my art college. But having said that, uh, yes, I love making my own vasli. So vasli is the mobile technique of creating a paper board. So what you do is you paste thin layers of paper on top of each other so that it becomes hard enough to uh, to support painting. And the layer, because of the many layers of paper, the surface is also extremely absorbent and it can take several layers of color. Uh, but usually uh, you would have very small works or works which would be like an imperial size. So what I do is I join paper to make really large works. 
and which is not a part of the tradition at all. You know, we wouldn't make a size which is say eight feet by seven feet, which is what I'm doing. Um, I also use a lot of colors which are not a part of the tradition. Caput Morton, you know, is one example of it. Caput Morton has not been used in any of the past schools of Indian painting or colors like Persian blue. Again, that Persian blue and burnt sienna comes from the legacy of your mm -hmm. art school education. You can't work without these two base colors. With regard to the ways in which you are actually continuing a lot of the legacy of quote-unquote miniatures, something that really interests me is that actually violence has been a part of miniature painting really since its inception and yet popular understanding of miniature painting is not of that people think it is actually this quite neutered as you said beautiful quite resplendent um you know sort of genre of painting of course when you actually research this you know you scratch the surface that of course is not how it is in the context in which these paintings have been created is also one that's been very much marked by violence and of course colonialism and i was hoping you could maybe speak about you know that as well um, like for example if you uh, look at Pahari manuscripts of the Ramayana or the Mahabharata or the uh, Mughal uh, interpretation which is called the Rasamnama or if you um, look at sort of court paintings uh, do depict the violence of that particular time and if you look at sort of uh, 19th century paintings which I think is what you're referring to uh, there were a lot of uh, paintings that depicted uh, sort of quote-unquote, the caste and tribes of India, which is the label that were given to these paintings by the colonial administrators. So even though they look very pretty and they've been used uh, in decorative context today um, as part of home decor, but the act of classification itself or seeing a particular person from a particular caste has to look like this or looks like this, that itself is very violent because you know you have somebody who's surveying the, the model is of a survey model right mm -hmm. so yes we we can be seduced by the beauty of such works and their delicacy or the colors but uh, we have to also see the context mm -hmm. that they were painted in and of course it definitely brings up this role of um the artist or even the artisan and what their duty is in terms of recording the sort of immediate world around them. Because obviously it has such huge historical bearings when you look back at these paintings, which work as historical documents in a way, and you have to be so obviously aware of where they were you know, created and the sort of power dynamics Absolutely. that you know they were created under. But they do also stand as incredibly valuable pieces of history. True. And so... On that note, I sort of then wanted to, you know, return back to the duty that we have to remember as as artists. Something that you just pointed out as well is this idea of surveillance. And something that really interests me about this time is that we've seen an enormous increase in state surveillance yeah. in the last 10 years. And so at this time, at this juncture of sort of, you know, at one point, complete amnesia and, you know, forgetting, it's all, we've also never been more closely recorded you know, and it, it's certainly something that plays into my mind when I'm looking at your work and this, you know, insistence on recording and keeping your own, you know, your own data, your own, your own memories of what is happening and not allowing it to just be recorded elsewhere and, you know, stored in some hard drive somewhere by an Israeli software. True, true. Incidentally, I'm living in the most surveilled city in, in the country and possibly 
in South Asia. I did not, I did not know hydroblood was so, <laughs> yes, it is. Was so surveyed. Is, is, there, is there a reason for that? Uh, we're not sure how it happened. It's just suddenly sort of burst upon all of us in the past year. We're really not, we're really not sure as health buddies how and why did we get to this point, but apparently it is. The number of um, cameras per square meter or whatever, per square kilometer is the highest. It's a sign of our times, really. Mm-hmm. You're right. One has to make our own archive and mm-hmm. keep our own memory. I think yeah, the biggest takeaway that I took from your show is the, the need to be constantly vigilant yes. about what you are seeing. And it's not even good enough to you know, just simply record it. But you have to also sit with these images and really consider them. Because if, if they pass by you in a flash, I feel that in a way the violence then becomes replicated. Whereas if you deconstruct it, and you learn to understand the signs, the, the wider picture, you know, essentially, as it were, that these instances of violence are not actually isolated. They are part of a much larger pattern that, you know, goes back 75 years, 175 yes, years. absolutely. Thank you so much, Veronica, for uh, having this chat with me. Thank you for agreeing to this conversation. It's no, hugely really rewarding it. Thank you. Uh, to meet somebody who sort of... Uh, understand what I've tried to say and engages with it. It's been a very beautiful conversation. I hope listeners who haven't um, haven't seen the show yet um, can still go. It's on till the 30th of December and I would highly recommend it. As I said, a very important and urgent show during these times. And in case you happen to visit, please do drop in a line on Instagram or just drop in a line with the gallery. 